Tonight we're going to look at one of Jesus' parables. For the most part, for all of the films, we'll find ourselves firmly planted in the sayings of Jesus. This may be a surprise to you, but the provocative nature of C.S. Lewis in these conversations is harvested directly out of a provocative ministry, the ministry of Jesus. As we look at this parable, though, there's a reason why it doesn't hit us like it used to. Every once in a while, a story comes along, or a book, or a teacher that changes the world to such a degree, there's really no going back, and it's hard to remember what it was like before that. If I can give you an example, um, Bram Stoker's Dracula defined vampires, okay? Often imitated, never repeated, Bram Stoker's is the beginning. But it's hard for us as a modern audience that knows the name Dracula as a common name to realize that that book was originally read not knowing that Dracula's a vampire. Not knowing that it's kind of a mystery finding out what's going on and what's up with this guy. It's not till the very end that even the concept of a vampire is really presented on the page. But it's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us to read the book afresh and not spoil the ending for ourselves. Okay? The parable that we read, in fact, a lot of Jesus' parables have a similar effect. I'll give you one more illustration, and then we'll look at, at the parables of Jesus. Um, if you ever read the Scarlet Letter, I don't think it's as common to read uh, in, in school as it was once, but the premise is that a woman uh, gets caught in adultery and is forced by her community to wear constantly a scarlet big letter A on her person for the rest of her life. But in the second half of the book, she basically lives such a tremendously gracious and generous life. By the time her life is over, it's become a mark of the most gracious and generous and loving people, and it becomes a symbol to aspire to where it was once a symbol of the despicable, okay? Similar idea, Jesus' parables. I'll give you one really good example, and then we'll look at this parable. The Good Samaritan, okay? That phrase, Good Samaritan, has entered into just our English usage. When I was a child, I had a little tin of cream, of a salve called Good Samaritan. Other than knowing it was made in Philadelphia and that it would suck slivers right out of your foot, I know nothing about it. And once the can was gone, we never saw any again. But the premise was that the Good Samaritan, right, the Samaritan is, is a hero, something to be uh, exemplary, a, a model, if you will, someone to look up to. When Jesus first tells the parable, it's a very different circumstance, Okay, he's telling this to an audience of Jews, and Samaritans are on their hit list for people they hate. And by the way, the relationship is a little bit reciprocal. Samaritans have nothing to do with Jews. To the degree that on occasion, Jesus speaking with a Samaritan woman, the woman says, why are you talking to me? Right, that's how divided these things are. So when he makes a Samaritan the hero, there's a double take going on in his audience. You can hear a pin drop, and we miss that today. We read it, and we don't see what the big deal is about the hero of the story being the hated Samaritan. It's the same tonight, but in reverse. Pharisaical is a negative term. The Pharisees are seen, because of Jesus' ministry, in constant ridicule of their hypocrisy, of their lack of compassion, of reducing, um, reducing a relationship... Go- to God down to external and legal obligations and missing the heart of these things. But you have to remember once again that when Jesus first speaks this parable and he presents two people, the Pharisee and the tax collector, everyone in the audience has agreed that the Pharisee is supposed to be the hero. 
Everybody is expecting the Pharisee is going to be the model, is going to be the Mr. Rogers, is going to be the one that's held up as a way that we should also live, especially in contrast with a tax collector. Okay? It, for, for whatever reason, for the last month, we've talked about tax collectors almost every week, which is funny because we've been talking about marriage and sex and divorce. I don't know how those bridges keep getting crossed, but I want to remind you again that in the first century world, the tax collectors were national representatives of Israel. They lived in Israel. They were Jewish, but they were working for the Roman Empire that had Israel under its thumb. And the way that Rome smartly went about collecting their taxes is not only did they choose people from the country they were taxing, which removed a whole different issue than a centurion knocking on your door, um, but they also told the tax collectors that they were allowed to collect as much as they could get above what they owed the Roman government as their pay. And so not only would they collect your actual taxes, but their profit margins were determined by how much they could extort out of their audience, okay? And so tax collectors are awful people on two counts in the Jewish mindset. One, they make their entire living off of deceit and taking advantage of others. Two, they're working for the enemy, okay? Those are the characters that we're dealing with tonight, and you have to recognize, even tonight, that if you're making a brand new society and you get the choice between a populace of, of Pharisees and a populace of tax collectors, you go Pharisee every time, okay? Because they pay their bills on time, because they, they have a moral code that they keep very rigidly, and they might be jerks, but they'll keep the society moving. Whereas the tax collectors, you have, you have this phenomenon of distrust that's just built into the DNA, okay? Now, with that in mind, Let's read the passage and try with me to read it with fresh eyes, if you're familiar with it. Recognize the conclusion as a conclusion and feel the weight of Jesus' words with the original audience. Chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And listen to his conclusion. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, we are so capable of trusting in ourselves and despising others. We're so capable of self-righteousness that we can approach a text like this and condemn everyone but ourselves. I pray that you would help us tonight to see the seriousness of these matters, the truth of this reality, and rest in the solution that you present, knowing that it's our only hope. We ask this in your name. Amen. A lot of times when Jesus tells parables, either the gospel author or Jesus himself will give us the reason he's telling the parable. So, for example, the Good Samaritan is told in response to a man 
who willing to, or wanting to justify himself wants a clarification that when the law says we need to love our neighbor as ourselves, who's our neighbor? And so Jesus tells this parable and he turns the question completely on its head. By the end of it, we're asking instead, who are we being a neighbor to? In the same way, it tells us here in verse 9, he told this parable to whom? To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Okay? This is his target audience. This is the moralist. Now, um, Dana and Irene's presentation is helpful in bridging the gap between Lewis's original thing and this parable. And so I want to tell you Lewis's original story, how it plays out. As all of these residents of hell get off the bus and step into heaven, one man in particular is hailed by another man who he knows from his life as being a previous employee. And they start up a conversation and you discover very quickly that the man who is being greeted is being greeted by another man who is a murderer, who killed someone that the main ghost knows, okay? And so he starts right off of him and he says, you've got nerve being here of all places. And, and before he can even explain what's, uh, what's going on, uh, the man presses in deeper and deeper and then he says, not to mention the fact that here you are and I've been down there when I was entirely upright my whole life, I tried to do best by everyone, I never took what I didn't deserve, and all I want is my rights. And so they have this ensuing conversation, and the man is both simultaneously offended by the presence of someone worse than him in heaven, and also demanding that his place be made for him. What's fascinating about it, if you get the chance to read it, and I apologize for not having the... Um, pre-thoughtfulness to order a bunch of copies so you could pick them up tonight. Um, but Amazon will beat me to it anyway, so just order it. Um, but it, it becomes very clear in the conversation that the murderer that he's talking to, the only thing on his mind is getting him to come with him, to enter into heaven, to lay aside anything that might be dis his distraction. And despite the valid arguments of the moralist, it's to some degree clear that he doesn't actually want in. Not if it's this type of place. In fact, at one place he says, I don't need anyone's bleeding charity. And the ghost responds, well then change that right now. Because it's available. Ask for bleeding charity and you'll have it. And the man says, I, you know, if they want to let a guy like you in, that's their, that's their choice. But they're not going to drag me into this little clique. And he storms off and heads back to hell. The reason why the film we watched is helpful is because it moves from some people who behave like this to the deeper reality that this is the human condition in its totality. I don't know if you noticed, but as we watched that film, you suddenly start to realize that people are on opposite sides of different issues and that even sometimes they're calling people out for their self-righteousness self-righteously, right? They're criticizing people for their narrow-mindedness narrow-mindedly. And the reality is it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult for us as humans, one, to tolerate injustice, and two, to see it in ourselves. And so what I want you to recognize is that Jesus is not necessarily, or at least not completely, addressing a category of person, a some people problem. 
the issue actually is really easy to prove, if, especially if you've been a Christian for tonight. It's very easy to read this passage, and your response to it is, God, thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee, right? And it just feedback loops, and you end up in the exact same place as the Pharisee, okay? So that's the problem. But he presents these two contrasting ones, one who comes and has a laundry list of good things, okay? Jesus doesn't say that this man is a liar, that's not part of the parable. But he comes presenting a solid argument why he should be in relationship with God, why God should accept him. Uh, if you notice, Jesus uses the word justified in verse 14. The question here is, who wins their court case? Which one is validated? Which one is, uh, in God's eyes, stamped as being righteous? And so we have the one who's lived a good and just and dignified life, and then we have the tax collector. And the tax collector doesn't have an argument at all. He just pleads for mercy. In fact, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So he doesn't even plead not guilty. He says, I'm completely guilty. All I have left is mercy. And God looks at that one in the parable. And Jesus looks at that one and he says, this is the one who goes home getting what he asked for. Now, it's helpful to look a little bit closer. Because the reality is pride self-righteousness, these types of things always manifest in the same way even though they're surprisingly hard to see if you're looking for them, unless it's somebody else, and then it's pretty blatantly obvious, okay? But in ourselves, it can be a challenge, so I want to draw out a few things, okay? Notice verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. Now, when it says here he was standing by himself and this is how he prayed, it means that he prayed to himself, okay? So, it's helpful if we don't make it any worse than it is. He's not shouting this at the rooftops, you know. That is something that Jesus criticizes many of the religious leaders of doing, of praying on street corners because what they really want is the respect of men around them and not really interested in actual devotion, which is what prayer is. Here, he's praying to himself, and what we get is the curtain drawn back and we get to see the inside reality, what's not norm normally noticeable. The the tax collector barely even enters in. He's off in the shadows. Nobody really knows what's going on with him, and we get an inside view there as well. But notice the prayer that he prays. The uh, Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Here's the first thing you have to understand about the moralist position. You have to understand about self-righteousness. It inherently is comparative. It has to do with me versus other people. Now, there's a couple of reasons that are problematic in this. What I really want to do tonight is rationalize with the foolishness of this approach. What we saw in that video effectively is these things. I am this, you are that, therefore I am better, you are worse, right? It was inherently comparative. And we see the same thing here. But I want you to notice a couple of things. First off, he chooses relatively easy targets, does he not? Thank you that I'm not like the extortioners, the unjust, which is just the basic Jewish word for the wicked, right? Not even a word that we like to pull out of our inventory, out of our vocabulary very often. And then the adulterers, okay? I think we'd all recognize that comparisons work really well when you've got people like Hitler and Pol Pot. And all I want you to recognize tonight is when we make these comparisons, 
we always choose the worst things we can think of. You know, the, the great villains of the peace, if you will. Not only that, but recognize also that his, his comparison is not just choosing the worst, but it's inherently selective. He just chooses a few. If you look at the entirety of God's revealed uh, will for human life, he really only touches on a few areas. Areas that evidently he doesn't really have manifest problems with. Okay? So I'm not the type to take advantage of people financially. I'm not the wicked, which is almost always an oppression and a violence term in the Old Testament uh, for the Jewish mind. And then I'm not an adulterer, right? I've been faithful in my marriage. But the reality is it's selective, okay? There are plenty of other categories that we don't bring up in our comparisons because they would condemn us. I'll just give you one easy illustration. How often is it that one of the greatest and adamant forces against a particular issue ends up struggling with that self-same issue just in the privacy of his own home? And so for him, he's somehow able to bifurcate or make the distance between the public venue, which makes it inappropriate and the worst thing to happen to the earth since whatever, uh, and then in the private life can maintain that double mentality. But there's a deeper issue with comparison, okay? There are two reasons why we make awful judges in judging other people in comparison to ourselves. Both of them, I think, are demonstrated pretty well in running a race. Okay? If you are running a race uh, and you're getting to the finish line, why don't you get to be the judge of who crosses the finish line first? Okay? It's, it's for two reasons. Don't jump to the obvious one. Let's deal with the slightly less obvious one first. Your perspective while running a race is relatively limited. Right? If you're running it well, you, don't, you are in a position to see the close margins. Right? And the reality is in our comparisons we neglect the fact that our perspective is incredibly limited, okay? And we make our pronouncements based on relatively small piles of evidence, not knowing the rest of their life, not knowing the rest of what's involved. In fact, what it's somewhat like is trying to boast that we're a bigger iceberg when we can't see underwater. And so we can see the peaks and we can say, my peak's higher, but all of these other things are left off the table in our judgment. And I'm, I'm not pointing out um, anything but the fact that there's a silliness to that reality. Let me, let me put it in life terms for you. We recognize now that your upbringing, the household that you grow up in, very much shapes who you'd like to be. This is not just what happens to the unlucky folks, right? This happens to all of us. We're all shaped by these things for better or for worse. So when we walk into a room or walk into a relationship and we see somebody responding very quickly to anger, do we pay attention to the context, to the roots beneath the fruit of that life at all? A lot of times we don't even have the opportunity to, right? But what we do is we gauge it against our own upbringing and yet we forget, you know, that maybe we had a relatively stable family that taught us how to process through emotions um, that we've never even really witnessed an act of violence. But iceberg and, and out-of-the-water reality, those things matter, okay? They're part of the race. They're part of the DNA of these decisions and we are very swift to settle for a very shallow analysis and comparison. Our perspective is limited, okay? 
There's a second reason, though, and I think it's the more obvious one. It's that you have every interest in winning the race. And so we generally don't allow people running the race or participating in the game also to be the ultimate judge of the goings-on. You see, we always, always assume just in general that we are better than. And there may be people in your life that are exceptions, but they're just that, they're exceptions, right? And what we have to recognize is one of the reasons why human comparison doesn't work well is because we never recognize our own self-interest in being at the front of the queue to heaven, if you will, of making sure enough people are behind them. We never recognize, like in those relationships, that the manifestation of self-righteousness is from directly the fact that we assume we're the right one. It's just our starting place. And you may have noticed in the video there's a progression. Irene pointed this out to me in an email this week. It starts with just self-assessment, right? I'm a good person. I've always done the right thing. And then after a while, it starts to look negatively on others and then to be irate about those things. And the place where it ended over and over again for all of those characters is in the end of relationship, right? The leaving of a blog, the escaping from a community, the severing of ties, The implication that I'm pointing out to you tonight is that a common uh, denominator in a plague of ended relationships is you. (laughs) It's me, right? It's this reality that they aren't willing to change, and we never think, oh, maybe, maybe I'm the one who needs to change. And so we're there, arms crossed, waiting for an apology, and that's our assumed posture in relationship. That's what we're talking about tonight. In fact, let's deal with something very quickly. Why is it that the internet has become such a horrible place? The reality that we observe there, I know you've all seen and witnessed, and it makes it really hard to talk about anything of importance, right? There's, there's no way to speak on social media about politics or things that you care about or anything without the threat of that happening, okay? Do we honestly believe that the internet has just given trolls a voice and that that's just some people? Or is there something about the availability of the internet, the anonymity that it brings, the, the um, nakedness of the interaction that allows us to be literally just essential oil of indignation, right? Uh, is there something about that that's really not about a small group of people but that it actually allows the venue for what we really think on the inside to be known? Is it possible that the only thing that you can compare to the comments after a controversial blog is your own heart? And what you find very quickly is the answer has to be a resounding yes. And so he starts here, and it's comparison, but here's the big problem. That, that stuff is just rational, but let's talk revelation, Let's talk about what the Bible says about what the standard of righteousness and obedience is. The problem is a comparison to other people is never going to be what this is about. Okay? We'll come back to this um, illustration over and over again, but there's an occasion that takes the characteristics of this parable and plays it out in actual life, in Jesus' life. Here's what happens. He comes to a man named Matthew, who is a tax collector, 
And he says, Matthew, I want you to be one of my disciples. Come follow me. And to Matthew's credit, he leaves it all behind. He walks away from his job. And unlike a fisherman like John who can go back, there's no going back to your post if you've neglected your job as a tax collector. To his credit, he makes a very bold decision. But the next thing he does is to celebrate he has a party. And the only people who will come to a tax collector's party is other tax collectors. And so Jesus finds himself sitting at the table with an entire group of tax collectors in a world where there really is no private spaces because the only place where you have to gather for meals are courtyards. The Pharisees see this, they hear about it, and they start to grumble and complain to Jesus' other disciples and say, why? Why does your master eat with tax collectors, with those people? And Jesus says something really enlightening that he passes on through his disciples to them. He says, the healthy have no need of a physician but the sick do. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Okay. So take that illustration for a second of health and sickness. And this is what happens when we make our comparative other sick people. It's like us going to the doctor and saying, well, I'm not as sick as that guy and I don't have cancer like them. So, and we're making this case where it's really a non-issue. It's, it's really beside the point. And the Bible makes tremendously clear that the standard of judgment in good behavior, in righteousness, is not the evident bad examples of people around you, but the sole perfect example of God himself. And I think we'll all recognize that the measurement is very different. But so is the rationality, is it not? When you're trying to measure a building, do you pick something that you know to be perfect or something that you know to be flawed? Now, if all you have is flawed things, then you can probably scientifically figure out the best way to build the building and be as close as possible. But the Bible contains an emphasis on the fact that God is holy, that God is perfect, that God is righteous, that God is just. And the problem that it constantly points to in human life is that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Not that we haven't lived up to some sort of measured standard of personal behavior, not that we haven't, um, uh, you know, not that God somehow grades on a curve, and so we have some that are closer than others, and that's all that matters. The second reason why this is a failure to understand things is because of the distance between God's perfection and whatever state we're in, and the state we're in, and however bad they are, okay? Those are not equal distances. It's somewhat like it's somewhat like a boat sinking and knowing that there's land miles away and then as you're drowning, arguing about the fact that you made it a couple extra hundred feet. Okay, it's kind of a non-issue. And the problem that Jesus is trying to draw our attention to is that there's a danger for the Pharisee. There's a danger for the moralist. There's a danger for us in our self-righteousness that isn't readily apparent to the tax collector. And that's the fact that we're pretty sure we're good, that we're sufficient. But it's because we're using very poor tools for the job. Now notice, notice as well, he doesn't stop with just comparison. And I will tell you this, it never does. He doesn't stop with just comparison. He goes on here, and he goes from these three categories, the 
unjust, the extortioner, and the adulterer to something that's a little bit more tangible and specific and actually involves the direct, in-the-moment pointing of a finger. Did you notice this? He says, even, verse uh, 11, very end there, even like this tax collector. Thank you that I'm not like these categorical sinners or even like that guy. Now, I already told you how the Pharisees felt about tax collectors. Jesus, why would you eat with them? Why would you spend any time with them? He's responding much like the moralist in Lewis's story. You in heaven? It, it offends, you know, their sense of justice. But here's the thing. There is only one seed that produces the fruit of despising other people. And it is always self-righteousness. And so the reason I'm pointing this out to you is not to warn you about despising other people, but to point out that if and more importantly, when you do it, it's coming from this issue. Okay. That the natural outcome of trusting in yourself that you are righteous are, as it says in verse uh, 9 there, treating others with contempt. Now, I think we'll all recognize that even if you start well, and that's the outcome, then the formula is a little bit flawed, right? I think we can appropriately recognize that some people are respectable and loving people, but if what pride and self-righteousness and comparison produces in that is hatred and contempt and mistreatment, then it's flawed from the beginning, and it's guaranteed to be flawed in the end. Once again, it's just not reasonable. There's something about this comparative reality that makes inherently other people the enemy because this is a competition and inherently sets me up as being better than them and therefore more respectable, more worthy of other people's time, more valuable, etc., etc., and on and on and on. There are so many ways that this plays out. I want all of you, church especially. Church, I want you to listen up tonight and recognize that this is not just a before-you-come-to-Christ problem. That this is an ongoing battle. That, as was said by Charles Spurgeon, referring to Jesus' parables about the younger brother and the older brother, that even with the younger brothers who have this tremendous encounter with a loving God and all is forgiven and invited into the party, they all get older and end up like the elder brother. Right? We have this tendency to start from a place of God be merciful for me to a sinner and end in a place of the fact that God gave me mercy proves once and for all that I'm a better person than you, right? This reality is a bigger one. Here's a place that it plays out to, to serve as an illustration. When you read the Bible, if you read it like a Pharisee and everyone does, you read it to validate your goodness. And the wild thing is, you know, I've been involved in ministry and listening to to all sorts of things, studying other religions and cults and everything else. And the wild thing is, even those who disagree with parts of the Bible will use the Bible in the same way, okay? But James, the brother of Jesus, tells us that the purpose of the Bible is to be like a mirror, to show us what's wrong, okay? Now, there's really two ways that we use mirrors in our life. There's one that's accurate and appropriate and one that's a byproduct of that but is probably to be avoided, why do you have a mirror in your bathroom in the morning? So that if there's anything wrong with you visibly, you catch it first. Right? That's the purpose of a mirror. It's to show you when something is wrong. And when a mirror becomes about showing you when something is right, it can do that. 
But eventually, you're in a narcissist paradigm, right? And you fall in love with your own image, and there's something both awkward and twisted about that. The real purpose of a mirror is to show you when things have gone askew. The real purpose of a physical is to help you see if something's wrong. And if it becomes a place for you to validate your health, then you're, you're twisting it and you're bound to use it wrongly. Okay. Now there's another thing. It's not just comparison in this transition to God. And let me say one more thing. Maybe this idea of God or maybe this idea of my God is too distant for you to use that as a valid ruler. Because maybe how I'd image the righteous God is really just me projecting this thing with authority to make you live the way I want to live. I'll give you a simpler entrance. The Bible says that the one perfect lived life was lived by Jesus Christ. And I don't actually think it's that surprising or strange to recognize Jesus as a role model. But what happens if you start to use him as a standard instead of Hitler? Right? Instead of these hypocrite Christians that you know. Instead of these politicians who have proven their stripes once again. What happens when you take the life that was evidently and consistently a life of honesty, integrity, love, self-sacrifice? What if you remember that what that life looks like means that despite the fact that you were betrayed by a good friend of yours for 30 pieces of silver, despite the fact that all of your other friends forsake, forsook you in the most dangerous point of your life, despite the fact that people trumped up charges against you, knowing you had done nothing wrong just to get you out of the way out of jealousy, despite the fact that justice as a whole miscarried very happily along that lines, and despite the fact that th that same people then put you up against the greatest form of capital punishment we have ever invented as the human race, the crucifixion. And then in that circumstance, you pray, concerned for your enemies, concerned for the people who put you there, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. How about that for a litmus test? Now, that can feel really discouraging. It may even feel damning, but what we're seeing in this parable is that that's according to the plan, okay? That one of the things the revelation of Jesus Christ, his life does to teach us about God, is he shows us what real life looks like, what real righteousness looks like. It gives us a definitive view of perfection so that Jesus can say, I always do those things that please the Father. Perfect obedience. But there's another thing in comparison or beyond comparison that he does. So he says, thank you that I'm not like these other men. And then he gives a couple of examples of the things he does. And by the way, the grammar of the prayer here implies this isn't the whole thing, which isn't surprising. There's no amen at the end. The idea in the, in the grammar is that this prayer goes on and on and on. And so we basically just pan the camera away knowing he's not going to be done for a while. Okay? <laughs> but I want to draw attention to the two things he does say. After these gratifying comparisons... He then says two things in verse 12. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Just a few observations to make about these things because we see the same thing in our own self-righteousness. Okay, the first is I fast twice a week. Now think of all of the other things he could say. Think of all the other things that God cares about. In fact, one of Jesus' greatest criticisms is that the Pharisees found so much contentment and confidence before God in things like fasting and tithing. In one place, he says, 
you have neglected the more important aspects of mercy and justice and love and settled for tithing mint and rue and cumin. In other words, you you tithe even the smallest things, but the big things you don't even care about. Trying to grasp for an illustration, Jesus says you are like those who strain out a gnat if it gets caught in your throat, but comfortably and happily swallow a camel. We see the same thing with the Pharisee here. He says, hey man, I fast twice a week. That's the type of person I am. But the reality is it is inherently external and self-righteousness always is. Jesus in his own exposition on the Old Testament law says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you've even lusted after another person in your own heart, you have committed adultery. What does he say? He's saying externals aren't enough, that the reality that demonstrates the sickness of the human condition doesn't always leave a rash on your skin. Sometimes it's only visible at the heart level. And for you to sit in an office and say, well, as you can see, my skin and my fingernails are in perfect condition when there's a tumor the size of a football on your, on your heart, there's a problem there. And when we stand against other people comparatively, we always do it on issues of externality. And then lastly, he says, not only does he... Um, Not only does he fast twice a week, but he gives tithes of all that he gets. Now, to be clear here, the Jews were required to tithe, but that tithe is limited to particular things. And the Pharisees made a big deal out of the fact that they extended that tithe into every area of their life, including their rue and their cumin and their thyme, their spices, these types of things. Even the smallest things that grew in their garden, they made sure a tenth of it went to God. But do you see what that is? It's a convenient new standard of righteousness. It's a qualification that we've added that happens to be in our favor. Okay? It reminds me of that episode in the first season of The Office where, um, where Michael Scott is in a basketball game and conveniently he overreacts to a foul while they're ahead and then says, no, if the game's going to be like this, we're not going to play anymore. And then he tries to play it off like he didn't know who was ahead and tries to hold the consequences of such a game, who's going to play on Saturday, as if it's no big deal. Okay? The, the reality is we do the same thing when we select these determinations of righteousness that we've hand-picked in our favor. Okay? So these are the things that he says, and there's one last thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage. This is a prayer. A prayer is a form of worship. But the reality of worship is not just that it's directed at the source that you're worshiping, right? Let's take the word praise because it's more helpful. Let's make it human for a second. If you're praising someone and you walk up to them and you say, man, I am such a great person. I want to tell you all about the good things I did yesterday. That falls short of praise by definition, right? (laughs) It also falls short of worship because worship is not just the trajectory or the direction of your communication, but the content. And his worship here is accurately labeled in the New King James as praying to himself, because that's who he's talking to, and it's who he's talking about. See, one of the major problems of self-righteousness is it acts as if you are the top-notch, center stage, focal point of the universe. It inherently falls short of worship because it has nothing to do with God's goodness, even if you couch it in religious terms, right? It starts as a thanksgiving, but I think we'd all recognize he doesn't think God has anything to do with any of these things. 
He basically says, God, thank you that I've done so many good things for you, right? He uses the language, but the content isn't there. And that's, once again, how self-righteousness is. Self-righteous can even take religious things and make them awful, okay? That is the reason why we are so good as human beings at boasting in our humility. Really? That's something that I think of all the species in the world, human beings are the only ones who are capable of. That we can go, boy, I can't believe how proud you are. And in actuality, we're manifesting pride in that expression against it. Or, or we say, no, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just so glad I'm a humble person. Really? Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables, understood this, and he says in that book that the convent is a great contradiction in terms. It is self-actualization, self-praise in the form of self-deprecation. And so you put on a cowl and you starve yourself to death, but it's all a way of pleasing and serving your ego. And we can do the same thing with a righteous condemnation served from the pulpit. We can do the same thing with a declaration of our innocence. We can do the same thing by devoting our life to demonstrating the right standard of living, but in actuality it is merely and solely self-serving and self-focused. In contrast, let's look at the other man. Here in verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so what this tells us is that he doesn't even enter in getting close to the temple. He stands a long distance from where the Pharisee is so proudly standing. It says that he beat his breast, which is a, a symbol of great pain and sorrow. And it says that he doesn't even raise his eyes to heaven, right? That's shame. If you're a parent and you catch your child in the act, they're not going to look you in the eye right, for the same reason. And when he builds a case here, he doesn't really have any case to build. He owns up to the reality that he's fallen, fallen short, and he throws himself on the only possibility that God would be a person of mercy. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, there's something I want you to recognize here, which is all the things that are missing from this, okay? Because here's the reality, this parable is told to people who trust in themselves, but it's totally possible for you to trust in your tears, right? To come to God and cry hard enough so that he'll take you back. It's totally possible to trust in your repentance, that you feel bad enough, or even to trust in your repentance that you make promises that it will never happen again, but all of it implies that you will be the source of your salvation, because you've earned it through your tears, through your pain and suffering, through flagellating yourself, through, you know, criticism. We don't see any of that. What he prays is so simple and so short. But I do also want you to recognize that he takes upon himself the label sinner. Maybe there's never been a time outside of this one in this culture where that word was so defamatory. Right? It's not a label that anyone wants to wear, and it's a word that gets thrown around in such a way that it's inherently offensive. But he takes it upon himself, and that is essential to the reality of what's going on. Because if I can draw an illustration to Jesus' illustration, if I can draw a connection between the two, it is the sick who Jesus came for. It is the sinner who Jesus died for. 
And obviously, nothing shatters your pride like that label. Because inherently, what does it say? I don't measure up. I haven't done what's right. I've stood against your law. And you have to take it holistically and broadly. That's the other thing. If they're sinners and you now identify with them, the divisions break down. The comparisons break down, right? You're now measuring from the bottom accurately that you don't achieve sainthood, okay? Once again, this is not just a if you're not a Christian problem. We have to watch out for this idea that says I was a sinner and now I'm a saint, okay? The reformers tried to hammer down this idea with a Latin phrase that I won't bore you with, but it's basically this, simultaneous saint and sinner. That's the reality of the Christian life, and we see it in Paul's life. In fact, Paul's a really good illustration of how this plays out over a long period of time in following Jesus. Very early on in Paul's ministry, he writes a letter and he refers to himself as the least of the apostles. He says, compared to the 12, I shouldn't be kept in the same category. Why? Because I persecuted the church, because I actually sought to kill Christians, God's church. Later on in his life, about halfway through, he says that, uh, uh, sorry, let's do this right. I'm not even worthy to be counted among the apostles. Yeah, that's the one that comes second. So least of the apostles. Not worthy to be counted among them. There we go, I've got it. Okay, so what he says halfway through, what he says halfway through his life is he's the least of all saints. He says, there's no, no worse Christian than me and all Christians are better. In the last letter he writes, probably weeks before his death, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. Now, there's really only two possibilities there. Either being a Christian and following Jesus and devoting his life to telling other people about Jesus has made him worse and worse and worse. And he's just fessing up, man, I can't believe how sideways things have gone. Or his understanding of the depth of distance between him and perfection has grown the closer he got to Jesus. We have a modern parallel to this. It's called the Uncanny Valley. Okay. The uncanny valley is a concept that applies to artificial intelligence, um, like Siri on your iPhone. It applies to graphic design, like computer animation. How close is that getting to real life, looking like real life? And it also applies to, um, uh, to building robots. Okay? When your Teddy Ruxpin ran low on batteries as a kid and started to warble his voice, it didn't really freak you out because it's clearly a toy. But what if you were sitting in Starbucks having a conversation with somebody and it happened there? Okay, how disturbing would that be? You've now entered the uncanny valley. Okay? The premise of the uncanny valley is the closer you get to reality, the more disturbing it is when you see the distance between the two. Okay? That's what happened in Paul's life. The more he understood who Jesus was, the more he recognized the distance between him and himself. And so in the last of his life, he could still take that label and say, I am a sinner, and I'm worse than I ever understood. Now notice how he finishes this parable. He says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. There's a couple of reasons for that. There's a couple of things we have to think about here. The word there, justified, is a legal term. It means you won your court case. It means not guilty. And what it says here is the one who presents reasons for, uh, reasons for innocence or reasons for goodness before God, he goes away condemned. And the other who presents merely his own self-standing guilt, 
guilty verdict and, and just ask for mercy, he gets something more than mercy. He gets justified. He gets stamped with a reality of complete pardon, okay? The first thing I want you to recognize in that idea is that, uh, that it's relatively offensive, okay? There's a major difference between recognizing that we all fall short and that God is the God who justifies the ungodly. That the Hitler and the Pol Pot that we'd like to draw out are not beyond the reach of God. That mercy is available even for them. That those who have let you down, neglected you, destroyed your life, lied about you, you know, have held you under their thumb for years, that those people, in this way, can receive mercy. But the reaction we have is twofold. It's a double-edged sword. One of it recognizes the reality of God's standards, and the second recognizes how much we need mercy. Whenever it does anything else, then you're just, you're just walking in the shoes of this self-same Pharisee again. Okay? The idea is not the eradication of all standards. It's the emphasis of the reality of the one standard. And so that changes the way that we treat other people. Unlike the reality that we looked at, that inherently, because of comparison, breeds contempt, this one breeds mercy as those who have received mercy. But look at how he sums it up at the end. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's very important that you don't read this wrong. This is not just some sort of reversal that the way to exaltation is humility. So just humble yourself now and everything will be fine. He's putting things in light of the reality of the judgment. Okay? Jesus proclaims over and over that there will be a day that comes where he stands as judge, where the books are open, where everything's known. And what he says is, those who are exalted in life are going to be humiliated on that day because the emperor has no clothes. It's not just that he disagrees with your arguments of righteousness. It's that you will disagree with your arguments when all's said and done. When it's all on display, you'll go, oh, goodness, right? Okay? And so the idea here is that the one who humbles himself will be exalted, not just because God values humility, but because healing comes to those who take their medicine. The reality that Jesus is presenting in the parable is not just that moralism is a bad choice. It's that moralism doesn't work. It does nothing about the sins that you are culpable of. It does nothing to remedy the places where you have fallen short. It doesn't address your guilt at all. It just has all of these um, uh, spurious positives that try and outweigh it. It's like standing before a court case where you're on trial for your life and saying, well, you know, I've never gotten a parking ticket. Who cares? It's irrelevant to the court case. When we stand before God, we don't stand as a judge who goes, now show me the good things that you did in life. We stand as those condemned because of the reality of sin. It's a choice here between your rights and mercy. And Paul's very clear in the book of Romans. He says, the wages of sin is death. I know we don't use that word wages, so you missed the point. The paycheck that we deserve with our life, your earnings of life, is death. 
And one of the reasons why we as Christians, when we take that label sinner upon ourselves, don't treat others poorly is because we have something better than our rights. We don't have to settle for our rights anymore, so they don't need to be defended. They don't need to be held up. We no longer are interested in what's coming to us because by the grace of God, that's been diverted and we have something better. And I want to say this tonight, no matter how it hits you, if you're not a Christian, it hurts me, it pains me to say this, but I want you to feel the reality of this. If you are not a sinner, then Jesus has nothing for you. Nothing. The promises of God are for sinners. The grace of God is for sinners. The relationship freely offered, one of intimacy and fatherhood, is available only to sinners. He says, I did not come for the righteous. And it's not just because they don't need his help. You want to know the difference between these two men, why one walks away receiving justification and the other doesn't? Because one asks. And the other doesn't feel the need to. And I want to press, even though we don't have time to push the application deeper, this is not just a one-time reality. This is a constant daily dying to self, recognizing that when we condemn others, it shows we know the rules. It shows we know the reality of what's at stake. It shows we know that there's a God of justice who demands justice. And if you don't allow that to come full circle and recognize the own need in yourself, you will constantly shield yourself against reality more and more and more until you honestly believe that everything is fine on your own standards with your own self standing there you will be those that Jesus is speaking to in this parable who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt let's pray Father, these things can be hard to hear unless we hear them in the mouth of Jesus. Because we know that Jesus didn't come just to diagnose, but to hand us a medicine. A medicine that was tremendously costly. One that cost him his entire life. A life of perfect obedience that we couldn't, leave, or couldn't, couldn't live. And a, a death that we all deserve that he freely offered in our place and then freely offered that penalty that consequence, that fulfillment on our behalf and said, it's been paid. It is finished. Not an ounce of wrath, not a consequence for sin is left for us because Jesus bore it all in his body. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who come to God assuming that we are wrong, assuming that we are broken, boldly taking upon us the label sinner, knowing that there's a solution for that provided in Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who are comfortable here that they would be disturbed by the reality of their sin. And for all who are disturbed by the reality of their sin that they would be comforted by your grace manifested in the love and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that like the tax collector with eyes averted and breasts beaten, we would pray for mercy. In the blood of Jesus Christ, we would ask for mercy.
Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus who taught us this parable, who pointed to our hearts and said, this, this is the problem, and I am the remedy. We pray this in his name. Amen.